0: Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes this is the community for you. So today I'm really pleased to have Robert Debray on the podcast today. Hello. Hiya. Did I pronounce that right?
1: Pretty much, yeah. It's a pretty good attempt actually. We've had all sorts of uh, pronunciations. I
0: have have been practicing. Oh (laughs) (laughs) yeah.
1: The office spends a lot of time telling people how to pronounce it.
0: I'll bet, yeah, and it's really difficult when people get your name wrong. I very often get Marianne, or oh, yeah. sometimes I get Marilyn or Maureen, and that doesn't go down Oh, that. Maureen, right. <laughs> so, Something beginning with M, that woman was beginning <laughs> with N. So tell me a bit about your business, Robert, and, and your surveying journey. How did you get started?
1: Well, qualified at South Bank University, well, South Bank Poly back then. Uh, that was in 1980-something. I can't even remember exactly. I think it was 86. And then I worked for Watson Partners and uh, Jones Lang Wooden as they were uh, back then, Jones Lang LaSalle, as they are now. And that's where I cut my teeth, got my letters, and then I went abroad for a while, <laughs> just messing about, doing nothing to do with surveying, uh, just travelling a bit. And my wife at the time, that's another complicated story, which I won't go into. She became pregnant, so we came back home, and I started working on the more residential side, pretty much on the, you know, valuations, uh, by report, building surveys. I was brought in to, to do the extended reports, really, because that was my qualification as a building surveyor.
0: You mean extended report?
1: Yeah, you know, the building surveys. As oh,
0: right,
1: people. yeah. yeah. So, I'd worked up in uh, near Bedford for about two years and then moved back down to South, which is where I'm from. My wife's actually a scout, so when I say I'm from Surrey, she says there's no need to apologize. <laughs> but, uh, every time you say Surrey, she, she pretends I'm saying sorry. But, uh, <laughs> so, and then I carried on working in the same industry for initially for an independent, joined a corporate. I had talked about, thought about setting up my own for a while, but my main fear had always been that if you're an independent, then you won't get any valuation work, really. It's difficult to get the valuation work unless you're part of a larger organisation. And I didn't think at the time that there was much building survey, residential survey work out there, or enough, really, to support a business unless you got involved in other aspects such as you know refurbishment and so on which I didn't want to do so I'd always delayed taking the jump until back in 19 no sorry uh, 2009 the company that I was working for uh, who I won't mention any names but they went under because of the financial crisis three other companies immediately contacted me and asked me if I wanted to join them and I thought Actually, this has got to be the time I set up on my own. If other people want me to join them in this market, which at the time I would say was from dire during the financial crisis, I thought, well, I'm, surely that should give me enough confidence to set up. So I set up and just made the decision not to do any valuation work whatsoever, because that was one of the reasons why I've seen companies falling, falling like mm. dollars, really, because of the valuation were drying up and also low fees high liabilities so once I set up on my own I was absolutely amazed that there was this whole other world that I wasn't aware of as a number of pages because obviously I've been working in the area for a long time by this time and a number of people phoned me up and said oh You've set up on your own. Now we can start recommending you. (laughs) Because they didn't want to recommend me when I was part of a corporate.
2: Right.
1: Rather uh, recommend independence. Just before uh, the company I worked for went under, I'd also been involved quite a lot in marketing for them because they were getting a bit desperate. Everybody was doing bits of marketing. and I got to know quite a few solicitors up in town. And that was very fortuitous because they started to recommend me as soon as I went independent as well. And that was some high-value work, but it was all building survey work, pre-purchased building surveys. Plus, I've always had an interest in listed buildings, so I tended to promote myself on that basis. And it just grew from there. And within six months, I had already had an income probably one and a half times what I'd earned in the previous year. And it was all cash buyers.
0: So it's really interesting. I've got a load of questions to ask you on on this. So a couple of things. Firstly, it's interesting you talk about actually that mindset or that belief that there is no valuation work if you work for yourself.
2: Yeah.
0: And there is this story we tell ourselves as surveyors, which comes from the panel firms that you know the lenders only give the work through the panel firm. You know, Mm. you've got to be on our on our panel to to do the work, and you've got to do it this way. And yes. That's one way of getting valuation work. But there is a whole other world out there of smaller lenders and building societies who like to work with valuers who know their patch, you know, and sort of still that local relationship mm. that goes on. There are people, you know, who want their property valued, not just surveys, mm. births, deaths, marriages, divorce, debts. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. they they all they all require some kind of valuation. And so it's uh, so I hear that a lot. You know, so it's it's interesting yeah. that you, you
1: have that. Well, I, funnily enough, by the time I set up on my own, I'd I had changed that mindset a little bit because, toward the, in the last year of working for the previous company, which had been struggling because of the uh, mortgage valuation work was shrinking so much, we'd been doing a lot of marketing, trying to get alternative valuation work. Uh, you know, as you say, you know, probate and all that type of thing. And so, by the time I did set up, I was aware that there was other types of valuation work to do. And there we did—we were on the panel of some quite small lenders that did like to use local chaps. But I think by then I had become a little bit jaundiced about the whole valuation market. You know, the way, the reason why it had all gone the way it had—a lot of the subprime mortgage lenders paying huge introduction fees to brokers who were allowed to instruct the valuer which was such an obvious significant conflict of interest. I mean we weren't going to help stories why everything went wrong but you know it's easy to say these things in hindsight but uh, there was huge conflicts of interests uh, and so I was you know I thought I don't want to be part of that I'd rather just do what I was trained to do which is look at houses and other buildings you know we'll look at some commercial property and tell people what they're taking on and try and give them a balanced view, especially if it's an old period thing that's wobbling around all over the place. Mm. Um, a you, like
0: me, <laughs> You mentioned the previous company that you worked for, going mm. Bust. And I think for many surveyors, actually, there's a generation of surveyors who won't have experienced a recession like we did back then, which was yeah. goddamn awful. And I've just been Googling the case law. It's a Merit v. Bab.
2: <laughs> ah.
0: but we were just talking yeah. before, before the podcast. I said, there's a case law, <laughs> I've just found it because I couldn't remember it. Where you know a firm could go bust, and you could then sue the individual surveyor, and that actually again put a lot of frighteners on surveyors for working for yeah. themselves. There's there's that security blanket of, yeah. of working for a you know for a corporate or a, even a larger SME. So when you go to work for yourself, again it's that that mindset of. I'm not going to get sued and do I have the right PI insurance and, and all of those things? Were you worried about that when you started?
1: Was I worried about it? I was concerned as to whether I could get insurance very easily, bearing in mind what uh, was happening at the time. With all the claims on valuations, I, sh- I assumed that the insurance market was very nervous. Uh, but actually, it was pretty straightforward at the time. I mean, premiums have gone up enormously recently. That's a whole other conversation, but, I didn't have any difficulty getting insurance. And also, bearing in mind, if you're working for a corporate and if things are going, if the market is very iffy and you're worried about the stability of the company you're working for, then you could argue that actually you're just as vulnerable as if you're working for yourself. Because if that company goes under and uh, they don't pay any runoff cover because they haven't got the money for it, then is there a liability as an individual surveyor who's been working for that company? And which that case is all about. Mm. Uh, Although my understanding is that it may have been overturned, but these things can constantly change, can't they? So Mm. I think you've got to set up in the confidence in your own ability, knowing that you are going to be giving the best advice you can. You've got to be pretty experienced, I think, uh, to set up on your own. You can't just go out on a wing and learn as you go along because you will miss things. If you do that, that is a risk.
0: At what point, though, do you know you're ever a good enough surveyor to work by yourself? Because on the one hand, you can get business support on how to run a business, but being a surveyor you're making decisions in the moment when you're out on site or when you're doing your report, and it all all comes back to you. So how do you know that you've got enough experience? Because we're all learning every single day. Yeah,
1: exactly. I was just going to say, well, you never know it all, do you? Uh, Mm. You all come across something new all the time. But I think, for me, the most important thing is knowing how to write the report, actually. You You can have all the knowledge in the world and have a lot of experience in Inspecting quite complex property, if your report writing isn't balanced, so it provides not only you know sensible reporting and doesn't frighten people off, but also uh, warns people of the risks when you're buying the property. For example, if it's a period timber frame, there's lots that you can't see. You have to give them an understanding of what they might find. I think. Once you know how to create those reports and you've been surveying, you know, and you've been post-qualification, maybe working for a company that works in that industry, I think really you need at least two or three years post-qualification experience in the industry you intend to set up in. Hmm. And then, you know, do it. Do it. If, you know, provided people don't keep complaining during those three years about what you're doing.
0: And, you know, in many ways, you can't really predict some of that. (laughs) It depends on the appetite of people, uh, uh, you know, of what's going on in the world at the moment. Um, Let me ask you about, you mentioned report writing. How do you do your reports? Do you use technology? Are you a paper and pencil man?
1: That's a conversation that I have with my surveyors probably every week. And we're constantly looking at ways of changing things. We can't use... Too much technology with the type of reports that we do. Uh, for example, going around with an iPad, you know, picking up standard paragraphs and pointing the iPad to take photos doesn't work when you're inspecting a, you know, a five million pound estate with three cottages, Victorian extensions, medieval elements, and an old hall, you know, all mixed up in the one. It you just cannot do it. It doesn't work. So we use on site. As a general rule, most of the surveyors will use um, something, you know, a a reminder form, I suppose, making sure they look Mm. at everything. But we use the floor plans. We don't use the floor plans. We don't rely on the floor plans for accuracy, but we use them as a template for writing our notes on. So we use, tend to use pen and paper, loads of photographs. I mean, rarely do I do a survey where I have less than 80 of photographs that I've taken. And on the bigger reports, you know, so we're doing a survey actually in a couple of weeks' time and there's two of us on it. And between us, there'll probably be you know, 400 photographs because it's a, it's a huge monster of a house with lots of outbuildings. But the actual report writing, uh, we use Dropbox, we use voice recognition. Um, so what I use, voice Dra-
0: recognition? Is that? Is that just on words? I use, Word I use or... Dragon, Dragon. Tasty, so
1: yeah. I use Dragon and a Dictaphone and then uh, the Dictaphone, I put the SD card into the computer and it automatically transcribes it. I then change the wording, because you always change the wording, and copy and paste it into the Dropbox template. And the office, in the meantime, creates the template, which has things like flood maps in floor plans, copy of the listing, all this various information. That you need we used to put in a copy of the epc because that obviously recently became an obligation mm. building surveys but it all got a bit cumbersome so it cumbersome, so we actually put a link to the epc in the mm. report and the surveyors will have a look at the epc and report on it using that link so it's a mixture but i'm quite excited actually about where it's potentially going next because funny enough this office that i'm sitting in is actually run by a company that also has an IT set up. And I'm going to talk to him about ways of report production that potentially where you'll tick boxes and it might say 1900 semi, not listed, and it'll automatically put in a load of paragraphs that suit in the right places that suit that property.
0: Mm. It's interesting because a lot of surveyors out there have looked at technology, look at standard paragraphs. And that will continue to improve as, as things in technology and innovation do in the, in the usual way. But I think it's really important, particularly for those trainees and those younger surveyors sort of new, newly into the industry, that you actually recognise the best way that you work So finding your routine of how you inspect a property, but also the best way for you to write your reports, for you to take your notes and to use technology to help you be more efficient, but not to... Necessarily, sort of prompt and remind you, and add in a paragraph just in case, because that's yes, when you there exactly. see these standard reports that yeah. are, actually aren't aren't very helpful, and it's yeah. finding that balance. But sometimes you you need to remember when I used to audit surveyors many years ago. I'd go out on site with them. And say okay, just talk me through your routine. They could talk through, you know, what well, I do the top first or the outside yeah. or whatever. I don't know. How do you methodically take notes? How do you then transcribe them or dictate? Yeah. Because that's where that you then fall down and you you get claims or where it doesn't doesn't help you. Um, I'll admit I I struggle with dictation. I struggle with dictation because it's talk well talking to myself. Here I am. I'm on a podcast. Years later, if you'd said up twenty years ago we're doing a podcast, I'd have died. <laughs> but there's a the thing about dictation is verbalizing what you're what you're seeing and talking through. Yeah. For some people, they will really draw spend a lot of time in the drawing of what they see on site and sort of work through that and for others there's that that verbalization of what you see and talk through and it reminds me of many years ago with the aa when i was in i got a company car and they sent us on a defensive driver course which was three of us squeezed into a courser. But what you had to do as you drove along, you would say, okay, so I'm coming up to a pedestrian crossing. I can see mum and two kids. I can see this. I can see that. And you're sort of talking through what you can actually see rather than just blindly driving across. You think, yeah, I know that there's there's safety things I need to be aware of, but that verbalising can really help. Yeah. I, I struggled with dictation. I'm a, really? I, I can't type either. I'm more of a two finger. I can do two fingers really, really <laughs> <laughs>
1: well. I, I've- think that I really agree with you regarding the standard paragraphs and over reliance on standard paragraphs we have a lot of standard paragraphs but we change them completely when to suit the report I've seen a lot of reports produced by other companies where it's quite clearly tick the box all the standard paragraphs go in but they haven't been adapted to suit the property I mean I looked at one where it was a period timber frame property and it it showed a photograph of quite a complex roof structure with typically old, quite gnarled and historical beetle infestation, what have you. And it just said, the timber frame is rotten. Get a specialist in. And That is an extreme example of where it all goes horribly wrong. I think that method I was talking about that we're looking at is literally populating a report with paragraphs that are not... Really expressing opinion about something that might be wrong, uh, but more just factual information. So, for example, if it's a listed building, it will automatically put in paragraphs in the right sections, explaining what the implications are of a listed building, and all the street, all the spiel that goes in about what your obligations are, and a heading, a titling, what we think that the potential non-conformant changes have been to the building. But obviously, you can't have a standard paragraph that tells you what those non-conformant changes are. Mm. That can only be put in when you do the inspection. And so it's more just a case of trying to create technology that reduces the admin that the surveyor is having to do. I think so he spends more time doing what he's trained to do, which is inspecting, reporting the condition. That's what the ultimate goal is, uh, You know whether you dictate dictate it or type it or whatever it doesn't really matter it's
0: whatever suits just like the inspection yeah i I think there's this attitude of though we have got to maximize our time how many jobs can you get in in a day or a week you know to be more efficient yeah and actually you know you want to be able to enjoy the job do it well and charge what you're worth one thing that comes to mind just as you were talking there was the home survey standard which the RICS are hopefully eventually bringing out first of december Because that actually opens up a range of different surveys and report types. And whilst they've got the levels one, two, three, and, you know, yes, you need a bit of a framework and you're smiling, so I wonder whether you disagree with the home survey standard. (laughs) But for a consumer, it can be quite confusing. But there is a place for, and I think this is where we need to look at the property and the client and what they need, but there is a place for a two-page report that says... And assign posts, this is what you need to do and who you need to go to, all the way through to a more in depth quality report that gives you everything that you need in one report. You've just got to set out what it is.
1: Yeah. First of all, so a couple of things there. First, the survey standard. Uh, I don't have any problem with the survey standards. When it first came out, I was thinking it was uh, we were going to start to have to be obliged to use the RICS documentation for which you have to pay for through the portal, but that wasn't the case. So the initial response when that first came out was a little bit misinformed. The actual survey standard, uh, which says what the different reports are and what should be in each report, I actually, once I looked at that in detail, I thought it was quite good. For example, you know, we did tended not to comment on the EPC. We mentioned it, but we didn't talk in detail about it. But now we do, since that is one of the obligations. And in fact, I think that's very useful because, especially when we're looking at the period buildings, the EPC often has advice in there which is totally inappropriate. We've seen many, I know listed buildings don't need an EPC, but some of them do. And you can look at it and it'll say, put in external insulation. I mean, you just can't do that on a listed building. <laughs> so, well, most period buildings. That must drive it, you where, mad reading oh, the reports then. Oh, oh <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah. Also, another thing that I think is really useful is setting out a priority of repairs, which is something that the survey standards suggests as well. So we've, we've brought that in in a stronger format than we're used to. I think the second point is we seem to have, and this is where I sort of move away from other surveyors' opinions, we seem to have this necessity to give a choice to people about whether they should have a home buyers report or a building survey. Mm. For me, when we were, uh, we, recently we were asked to do an article for the List of Building Owners Club magazine, and the article was asked, it comes out next month, I think, so it'll be in there. But Stuart Bowler, our surveyor Stuart, who you've probably seen on LinkedIn, real expert on period properties, What they actually asked him to write was explain what sort of surveys you should have for a listed building, which ultimately really is only a building survey, to be honest, but there was needed to be some explanation of the difference. And when he did his research, I mean, you find a lot of surveyors not just the backup staff who are trying to explain the difference between the home buyer survey and the building survey, but surveyors themselves find it really difficult to explain the difference. And when we actually looked at what the RICS guidelines were, there is virtually no difference in what you should be looking at and reporting on. And I've thought for a long time that what really we should be doing as surveyors is when people say, you know, what sort of survey should I have? we should say, well, we're just going to give you a quote for a survey that we think will be you know, the right price for the type of property you're buying to give you the information that you need.
0: Yeah, I am 100% with you on that. I think there's a time and a place for sausage factory templates that gives people high level sort of what they need. You know, there's a, a place for that. But I think for the majority, and this is where independent surveyors, I think, can really make a difference and, and really make their mark is to look at property, you know, as a project, as consultation, and put their expertise and what they would do and put that as a proposal to the client. And so you have one type of survey for that customer. Now we spend a lot of time explaining the differences. You know, and the fact is for what, how long's the home the home buyer survey been in? 30, 40 oh, years now?
1: Yeah. Four,
0: you know, long I time. We're nice, we're
1: nice. You know first starting in the industry. And
0: you're really old, so yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> We're
1: talking about nineteenth
0: century here. <laughs> you know, so the fact but the fact is we have spent what 30, 40 years trying to explain the difference between a mortgage valuation, a home buyer survey, a building survey, and a structural survey for those that still want to call yeah. it that. And we still haven't got it right. No. And now we've got a generational thing of those that started to understand and they didn't understand and now they've retired. Or they're in a bungalow and they don't need a mortgage anymore. And we're having to teach their kids or their grandchildren. Yeah. And it's like, it's like boiling the ocean and rounding up kittens. It's never <laughs> gonna happen. I think there's a clear, you know, there's more that lenders can do to explain what what the valuation is and the process yeah. and actually a lot of lenders now don't disclose the valuation mm. price they just confirm your mortgage has been approved but what we can do as, as surveyors and particularly independents is say this is the this is the service that i offer you yeah. and, and you, you just don't compare me to others because i yeah. i'm the most expensive in the area this is the way that I do things. I always include, you know, as well, you know, ex- yeah, yeah <laughs> but but this is it. And but it's having the confidence to do that and to make a stand. But do you know what, that from a customer experience point of view, that is so much better yeah. to say to understand rather than wasting everybody's time and energy to explain the differences, explain it badly. Yes. consumers then got to compare all the difference, you yeah, know, with, they, with, they, when they, they, they get quotes... Get confused.
2: Yeah, absolutely
0: sick. when when really what they what they want to do is to know like and trust you know and, and know that whoever's going to look at that property is going to give them the reassurance that they need and yes you know you can signpost on to other experts if that's what you need to do yeah. within the report yeah. but as mm. a surveyor you offer the support you create a support to the best of your ability that will meet those that clients needs i believe that so we're on yeah. the same page
1: Yes that's good that's good to hear and I think you know there are a lot of independents out there for example they say I only do building surveys and it's pricely precisely for that reason but actually really what they're saying is I only do my report which and I do it to suit the house and I you know price the, the survey accordingly. Yeah and I think that's the way it should be. There is this obsession with having a cheap report and an expensive report but you know what is the cheap report? You know, is it a condensed version or does it miss things? Or you know, I, I, It's so difficult to explain. It but
0: is. This- and, actually, and actually a lot of surveyors don't want to do that. They want to be able to do the job to the best of their ability and say the things they really want to say. But, you know, to get to that point, and I imagine you've done this in your business over time, is you have to spend time on your business So very often we cram our diaries full of appointments, you know, and and to do the jobs, but we don't spend time on our business to think, what is my routine? You know, what paragraphs do I want to use? What's my onboarding for my client look like? You know, what happens in, in aftercare for them? And you do that as a, as an independent. It's not overthinking of it. It's not about having a team of people, not necessarily, but having making the time to think about those things. And those, are, you know, they might seem small things, some of them, but they make a real big difference to your customer and also to you and how you run your yeah. business.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've, funnily enough, we're always looking at you know, improving some of the wording and setting up reports in ways that are maybe you know more understandable. In fact, recently we've completely turned our surveys upside down and we were finding... In our reports, we'd have reference to other bits of the report all the time. For example, if you've got some general movement and you've also got flexing in floors, deflection in roof slopes, it would all be in different parts, although it's all connected. And we would reference that it all is all associated, that movement, for example, deflecting roofs and and spread of the walls. It was tending to be in different parts and cross-reference. So we've stuck all the movement into one part at the beginning. And we don't mention it again so and the same with dampness we stick it all in condensation and ventilation we put it all in one bit and i just think so the the server is very front loaded with the main issues then after that it's all the superficial matters so when we're doing the exterior or right we'll talk about chimneys rainwater goods, we only talk about the external surfaces like the tiles and the the condition of the you know weather boarding and point is so so there's a better layout we think for the client but you've got to complete you've got to continue looking at improving constantly
0: yeah and you've got to make time to do that you know get customer feedback can I ask you because you you inspect mainly listed properties and big unusual stuff can I ask what's your process like? So you talked about property, you know, earlier on in the conversation that was a big pile with lots of outbuildings. How do you prepare for a to go to a property like that? You know, there's two of you going, you know, do you go do a rookie um, beforehand? No, you know, no, how, we do, never how do you prepare rec- for it?
1: Well, I think um Normally, I mean, these days, the, the property particulars are so much better than they used to be. You've mm. got floor plans, you've got floor areas.
0: Google Maps there's, and things. You,
1: you've got Google Maps. Uh, you've got, um, obviously, you've got geology reports as well. Uh, you've got historical maps. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you can find out about the property before you inspect it. But you don't want to be doing too much before you've quoted because you know yeah. you won't necessarily get the job. So. Most of our uh, research before we quote is really just is it listed and how big is it and how long do we think it's going to take and is it going to be one, two or three of us and then we'll we'll prepare a quote based on that. The value of the property doesn't always come into it to be honest. It's sometimes as relevant because there is an element of liability connected with the value so we reflect that but that's all we'll look at when we're doing a quote Also, we're often given very little time to come up with a fee quote because sort of people who instruct us need to get back to their client quite quickly. People who instruct us are buying agents, for example, you know, they'll phone us up and say, Can you do a survey yesterday? <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, that, that's uh, that's quite a common occurrence, which in this market is absolutely possible. You know, we're looking up nearly a month ahead at the moment, but. Once we've got the job, then we will do more research. We'll look at the flood maps you know, and the geology and the historical maps and so on. We use poles for cameras and things on site. Uh, we have used, employed a drone company a couple of times, but I very rarely found, find that necessary. I mean, you can't really predict very easily how long it's going to take you, to be mm. honest, until you get there. And you just have to take as long as it takes and accept there's going to be a few things that you hadn't expected. Mm.
0: I love the pictures that you post on LinkedIn and in the Surveyor Hub because they look like you see some really dream properties. Mm. Where most of us might be inspecting these, you know, little terraces in a town centre. You You look like you're living the dream, Robert.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm inspecting the dream. I'm not, you know, unfortunately, I don't own these (laughs) places. Uh, well, nobody but, wants
0: to own it because we know it's a money pit. <laughs> the <There's no> difference, <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, the it is fantastic. I mean, I love doing it. The way the company has developed over the years and it's produced. I mean, I am a strong believer in LinkedIn. And anybody who is thinking of setting up their business, I think they should. They should use that profile significantly because there's a, there aren't just other surveyors who are looking at your stuff. If you can connect with other people in the industry who are involved directly with clients, like buying agents and solicitors, provided they're prepared to accept your invitation, obviously, then it's really helpful. And you know, the more you put out there that is interesting, the more likely they are going to accept your invitation to you know to connect.
0: Yeah, and it's it's something that I talk about on the masterminds that I run, and I've also run a LinkedIn challenge, which I'll put a link into in the uh, in the show notes for how to get set up on LinkedIn. Think about the posts that you're posting, because there's a, there's a difference between posting. This is the kind of work. That I do. This is kind of area that I work in. This is kind of clients that I work with. There's, there's that. But what I also see, and one of the reasons why I set up the Surveyor Hub is I saw surveyors posting, "What's this? I've never seen it before." <laughs> and that may well be true, and it may be really unusual. Yeah,
2: but you don't That want doesn't to put that look link good. To, that. Yeah, that doesn't
0: look good to, to everyone else, and <laughs> and particularly sort of students might you know write that they don't write hashtag student. You know, or oh, that's really interesting yeah. from a student, and that. Yeah. But that's the footprint, and it stays with you. <laughs> you yeah, know?
1: yeah, it's a professional profile.
0: Yeah, used
1: so to display your expertise and knowledge, and also show very much the direction that your business is going and the type of work that you tend to do. If you start putting our stuff up there, for example, I mean, I hate expert witness work. I have done it in over the years. Uh, but I would never put something up there about an expert witness workpiece I was I've been doing because I don't want to track that business.
2: Mm.
1: So uh, I think the surveyors hub, I have to say that was a great idea. Well done. <laughs> it was it was a really good idea. And I looked, I don't do Facebook as a rule, I do a little bit on it, but now I do tend to look at those notifications for the Surveyor's Hub because it's a great mix of asking advice, putting something amusing up, which is sort of a, a sort of Facebook thing, isn't it? And a bit of personal stuff going on. I, I like the whole, which you can't put anywhere else, really. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 quite amusing, and I, even I learn stuff on it. As you say, you know, I started in the nineteenth century, so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's um it's interesting how it's how it's grown and and keeping that balance of you know sort of supporting a lot of the students that are in there and trainees actually who don't have mentors and now it's even more difficult to find that that support. But Mm. so they can recognize that there are other ways that you can learn and still learn until such time you can actually get inside a real life building. But I'd also encourage, you know, people like you and others who are in, in practice, if you see something interesting. Just post it because that really does make a difference. It's part of that giving back. And, you know, as we record this, it's October and I'm doing a series of posts called Mentober, which is just top tips and, and, you know, bits of advice for students. It was something that our Surveyor Hub admins actually put together and and wanted to to do. But it's recognising that as as a student or as a trainee, there are lots of ways that you can absorb information as you go along. It doesn't have to be going out with a surveyor. But also that for surveyors, we know you haven't got the time or the PI cover even or whatever it is, Barry, you think there is to taking a student with you. Yeah. But even just having, you know, giving someone, you know, half an hour of your time. Yeah. But you know what, even responding to a post, whether that's on LinkedIn or, or Facebook or wherever, just to say, well done. Or, you know, or thanks. So just that sort of reassurance and an acknowledgement that they're on the right track. Yeah. You know, because we've all yeah. had role models in our careers that have helped shape us. And, you know, we can use social media for good like that. You've mentioned your uh, your business and you've got a number of surveys working for you now. How did you go from working for yourself, one-man band, to then increasing and growing? What was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I think when you're working for yourself, you know, unless you make a specific decision that you only want to be a one-man band. I think taking that first step is probably the biggest, you know, of employing somebody else, probably the biggest in the entire history of the business. Mm. Because once you've done it once, it becomes easier to take on more people as you grow. So uh, it happened for me simply because... Obviously, I was getting more and more work. I was, at the time, I lived in a house which had a garage at the end of the garden which was partly buried into the ground and it was like a cave and I was in there till one in the morning and it was ridiculous, you know, I how much time I was spending there. I was thinking, this isn't what I should be doing. Um, and then, strangely enough, my next-door neighbour had a loft conversion done and a surveyor came along and did the party wall and I got chatting to him and it turned out that he did a little bit of, he did you know, a whole range of work, you know, domestic extensions, the odd survey and so on. And he decided, uh, he agreed to do some consultancy work for me. And then one thing led to another and he started putting all his work that he was attracting through my company saying, oh, here's another job. And I think, well, this is a bit odd. And I said to him, do you? All the everything you're doing now is as a consultant for me. Even if you attract, I say, do you, are you I sort of do you want to work for me? And he said, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it all sort of happened by accident, really. I mean, ironically, now he is a consultant again because he just likes fishing too much. So he spent <laughs> a lot of his time fishing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but taking that first step made a huge difference to me. Um, suddenly, I had a bit more time to go out and get more business, got busier again, ended up taking somebody else. And then since then, the challenge has not been attracting business because I think attracting business, actually, if you knew how to go about it and the steps you should take is actually very easy. Problem for me is finding the right people and people who have the experience in and doing the type of work we do because it's quite... Finding somebody who's used to looking at older properties and has the confidence to report without scaring the buyer Hmm. is is actually quite difficult Um, because most of the people who are like that usually are happy already where they are and maybe work for themselves.
0: Have you you ever taken on a trainee?
1: Yes, uh, and it didn't last it didn't last. The reason why it didn't last, I mean, we hoped it would, because actually we're now doing heritage reports as well. So we're hoping to train somebody up who could start helping with that side of things and doing a lot of the research and so on. We've got two difficulties, really, with that. One is because we're all home-based. It's actually quite difficult to give the one-to-one support. Obviously, you've got Zoom now, but I think with some with trainees, it's it's quite important to have a lot of face to face time. but not just at the property, but both working in the same room. Right, of course, they can mm. constantly ask questions about how to, you know, how should I word this and stuff like that. So we didn't have that facility. Also, the type of work we've got is sometimes it's just so. I mean, we we now are getting working when I first set up we'd be doing a lot of you know fairly straightforward you know you box down a 3 bed semi and things like that. Now nearly everything we look at is so complex that the trainee finds it terribly difficult to understand what they're looking at when they're still learning what the implications of cavity wall tie failure
2: is. Mm. and
1: we've got this really complicated building that we're trying to explain how it's all put together and how you should report on it and he admitted himself after about a month he said Look, I'm just, just completely out of my depth
0: mm. I, I guess though that's where the advantage of, of mature students come in you know so there's quite a few, not that I'm, I've got a trainee to push your way, but just, I'm just thinking of some of the people that I, I, uh, that I've come across is they're mature people they've worked or run their businesses themselves, which I think is always really useful and tells you a lot yeah. about their get up and go. But there's a lot of people who've worked in the industry, worked as estate agents and have that good, solid background in property, yeah, you know, which I think it really elevates them above others. And I, and I, you know, I came in as a, a sort of mature student, but there's, but I see that more and more and more coming through. And and I think, you know, I, I get the the complexity of really uh, the properties that you you deal with, but I think there's something about surveyors having some kind of life experience that actually makes them better yeah. surveyors. Because when you walk into these properties, you see it warts and all, not yeah. just what's gone on exactly. in the property, which isn't always pretty, but you're walking into people's lives and you're dealing with clients you know, who you're going to help with their lives. So having that sort of life experience maturity, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, that probably applies to a lot of industries, doesn't it? Taking on a mature student they've got more of an understanding of what to expect when they start at a new company.
2: Mm -hmm. When you're a
1: student, you've never worked for anybody before. So not only are you trying to learn about surveying, you're actually learning about working life. Also, another complex uh, issue that we have is you can have a surveyor who actually is quite knowledgeable or a trainee is quite knowledgeable. Well, I found it quite common that their, <laughs> their grammar is really awful. Mm. And you're actually ending up not just teaching them about construction and defect diagnosis and so on, but also how to write a report, regardless of whether it's a survey. You know, that, that, so you actually... And I'm thinking to myself, crikey, you know, I've got to teach them how to speak English as well as not speak English. But Mm -hmm. the reports have got to be reasonably grammatically correct. And we do get them all proofread, to be honest. But I've had that with a lot of people. Uh, A lot of surveys I've read where people have asked, where we've been interviewing people. I've read their surveys and I was thinking, crikey, you know, the wording in this is all over.
0: Part of that, though, is probably standard paragraphs that They've got Some
1: yeah. from somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. You know? Yeah, and getting the order of paragraphs a bit mixed up, and...
0: and and there is an element of you know I did a podcast earlier on in the series because there's quite a lot of surveyors who are dyslexic
1: mm.
0: as well. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't I mean, always dis- disclose that. Yeah,
1: it's quite commonplace actually. But
0: I so I suppose what you know what what's coming out is that for SMEs to take on surveyors or trainee surveyors is actually that they need. To be more mature in attitude, not necessarily age, sort of more well-rounded. That sort of bit of work experience makes makes a difference. But also, they've got there's that network of support that they have to be able to do things like write a report. And but you know, until you start doing that, you're not yeah, going to know. Uh, no,
1: oh. no, it's. I mean, it, it is a catch twenty uh, two, and it's something that I, can, I think it's very difficult for the industry to address.
0: It is, especially right now, you know, as we look at 2020 and the mess of a year that is.
1: I often say to people who uh, approach us, we get students approach us on a regular basis. And I explain that it's quite difficult for us to support them. If we were bigger, I've always said that we're not quite big enough to support them. And also we can't, we don't, we're so specialised that we can't give them the rounded support they need. For example, if they want to become, you know, chartered, they need to do you know project management, you know, party wall work etc so dilapidations i mean we don't do any of that but i often say if they really want to learn about construction and be involved in say residential pre-survey work then the best thing they could do is go to a company that medium-sized that does a bit of survey work but does a lot of residential project work Maybe of the larger the larger buildings, you know, there's a company in Hayward Heath who do an awful lot of refurbishment of listed buildings and that sort of thing. Mm. Now, a trainee working for a company like that will learn so much because they'll see the fabric opened up. They'll mm. also be able to contribute because they can do periodic inspections instead of a surveyor. You know, they can do some of the admin that's involved in project management. Uh, and I think that is a really good foundation for a surveyor who wants to go into this aspect of the business. We can't provide that. So yes. That would be my advice. Yes. Yes. yeah.
2: Yes.
1: yeah. But, um, well, I'm saying we can't provide it because we don't do that type of work. We don't yeah. involve in yeah. And I think that would be my advice to students who want to do what we do, is initially Get involved with that. Get that even, broad experience. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're not fully qualified, if you've been involved in that, and you're going to have some good knowledge, and that is going to be a good. I would take on somebody, a student who had that broad background, and help them through to the final, you know, final qualification. Because yeah. I know that I haven't got, to, I just haven't got the facility yeah. to start from scratch.
0: yeah Yeah. Robert it's been really lovely to talk to you today thank you thank you very much for your time enjoyed it
2: thank you very much
0: you've been listening to the surveyor hub podcast we'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing and if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference visit us at blueboxpartners.com